Good morning, church. I uh, don't usually get visions and dreams, but um, shortly before I woke up on May the 3rd, I had a really disturbing dream, and it was a bit of a nightmare. I woke up and had my Bible and my journal, and I began to journal the dream so I wouldn't forget it. And uh, typically in the past, many years ago, I would have just ignored it. But the dream, in the dream, a particular lay leader um, in our church, First Church, uh, came to me and said that people were leaving uh, the church, uh, the church had no life in it, and they felt it was time for me to step down uh, as the lead pastor. And shortly after that, um, I woke up. And uh, it was quite disturbing to me, and I was praying and saying, Lord, um, what does this mean? Does it mean anything at all? Uh, do you have a message for me? Uh, is this um, uh, a sign of uh, something um, that is to come or that may come in the future? Um, and what the Lord used that dream to show me as I have prayed over it and reflected upon it the last few weeks has been that at First Church, we are facing, I believe, a watershed moment in our history. Um, and many of you are familiar with the term a watershed moment. It actually comes from uh, uh, in Great Britain, actually, where the watershed is a divide that separates um, one drainage area from another, where the water will flow one direction or the other. And it's really come to mean, metaphorically, a dividing line between two events or two different time periods. And so in our world today, the COVID-19 pandemic is a watershed moment for human beings. Uh, I think historians are probably going to say that there's a pre-COVID-19 and there's a post-COVID-19 way of life. The pandemic has been hugely disruptive to our way of life, and it has forced us to adapt. Um, this face mask that I've got here, and actually this hand sanitizer, these have actually become kind of symbols of the, the pandemic and how everything has changed. I have two different face masks here so I can switch them out uh, when I've been outside. The Christian leaders have also had to learn to adapt to the changes in our world. We've had to reimagine the church. We've come to realize that the church is not a building. It is not programs and events, but the church is the people, God's people. And so whether we like change or not, things have changed, and they're not going back to the way they were. Somebody once said this, that change is inevitable. Progress is a choice. And so we have a choice as First Church of the Nazarene. The question is, how are we going to respond to a changing world? Many of the leaders of our church have been uh, meeting over the last uh, two or three years uh, and with greater urgency about the need for discipleship. Um, and I believe that we have an opportunity now with the way things have changed to take discipleship even more seriously than we have in the past. I believe that now is the right time for us to do this. This is our moment of truth, and this, I believe, is a watershed moment for us as a church. Now, the Christian church has always adapted. One thing that really sets us apart from many religious groups is that we do adapt to changing uh, environments, to changing cultures, 
Um, we are culturally sensitive. Even in the book of Acts, we read in Acts chapter 15 how uh, the Gentiles, the uncircumcised Gentiles, were coming into the church, and uh, the Jewish people didn't know what to do with them. And they said, you know, they don't follow our customs and our way of life and a lot of our religious traditions. And so what they did is they adapted for the Gentiles so that they could be included in God's church. And so this has become what we would call a missiological principle. Uh, missionaries have used this principle for hundreds of years now, and that is when you go into another culture, you adapt to that culture, and um, you use indigenous means in order to reach the people. The Celtic Christians under St. Patrick did that many centuries ago. So we find this principle in the Bible, and it's the words of the Apostle Paul, and I'm going to read this from the Message Translation. And this is what the Apostle Paul says. It's 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 to 23. He says, even though I am free of the demands and expectations of everyone, I have voluntarily become a servant to any and all in order to reach a wide range of people, religious, non-religious, meticulous moralists, loose-living, immoralists, the defeated, the demoralized, whoever. I did not take on their way of life. I kept my bearings in Christ, but I entered their world and tried to experience things from their point of view. I've become just about every sort of servant there is in my attempts to lead those I meet into a God-saved life. And I did all this because of the message. I didn't just want to talk about it. I wanted to be in on it. And so that tells me that we as the church need to adapt to a changing world and to changing circumstances. We've got to be nim nimble in our response to change in our day. And there's a lot of examples of this even in nature. We see how animals and plants adapt so that they can survive in changing environments. Uh, I love the oak tree. Um, if you've ever uh, gone out lately and just taken a look at the trees, I love being out in, in God's creation and the, the big old tr oak trees that have been there maybe for 200 years or more with the huge trunks. Um, they're wonderful, beautiful, deciduous uh, trees and they can live for a long time because they've adapted to different environments. And we need to be like the oak tree. And so the question you might be asking is, well, why should we adapt as Christians? Well, the Apostle Paul answers that question in this passage in 1 Corinthians 9. And in verse 19, he says in the New International Version, he says, I have become a slave to everyone so that I might win as many as possible. He says, I've become all things to all people that I might by all means save some. And so the reason we need to adapt is so that we can win more. The Apostle Paul says he's free, but he makes himself a slave. And it's interesting about a, a slave. Is a slave is a person who serves another. A slave does not serve his own interests, but he serves the interests of another. And the Apostle Paul says, I am here not to serve my own self-interest, but I am here to serve the Lord and to serve the people around me. And I will adapt and become whatever I need to become in order to bring Christ to them. And so the art of accommodating ourselves to the people around us, to the people that God has called us to reach is something that I want us to learn how to do, even with greater excellence. If God was willing to become a man, 
through Jesus Christ to come from heaven to earth to take on flesh in order to save us, then should we not also follow his example? And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul says. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And then he says, do not cause anyone to stumble. And then he says, even as I try to please everyone in every way, he said, I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many so that they might be saved. And so Donald McGavern, who is known as the founder of the church growth movement uh, back in the 1960s and 70s and 80s, um, he was a missionary, and he said this, and this became a principle that missionaries would follow, is that people like to become Christians without having to cross linguistic, racial, or class barriers. Remember I talked to you about the Council of Jerusalem, Acts chapter 15, when they said, what do we do about the Gentiles? Here's the statement from Acts 15, verse 19. This is what Peter and Paul and James and the apostles said. We should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And so we either have to adapt or die. And we don't do that for our own sakes or our own survival, but for the sake of those to whom we've been sent. And so we've got to be firm on the message, but flexible on the methods. We've got to adapt to the people, to the culture that God has sent us to reach. So there's room for everyone. There's room for you, and there's room for them as well. But we need to make room, just as Jesus was known as a friend of sinners. He hung out with tax collectors and prostitutes because he saw that they were hungry for God, and he made room for them. John Wesley in 18th century England did the same thing. He was a man with the finest education. He wore the finest clothes. He, worshiped, he was an Anglican uh, clergyman, and, and he was used to worshiping in, in buildings made of stone and mortar, stained glass windows, uh, beautiful wooden pews, and he realized that the only way he was going to reach the poor of England was he would need to do what he called field preaching. He would need to hit the streets and preach to them out in the open air. And that was distasteful for, for him. A lot of the things that he did were distasteful to him personally. It wasn't about his personal preference. It was about becoming what he needed to be to reach those who were lost. And that's part of our heritage as the Church of the Nazarene. This is in our roots. We are Wesleyan in our roots, and so we need to feel desperate for the souls of people the way that John Wesley did. And I find that the reason that we're often not feeling that desperation for people who are lost without Christ is it's out of sight and out of mind. I just heard about a plane crash somewhere else in the world this morning. I forget where, where that happened. But we tend to not think about that too much unless it happens close to us. And so the only way that we can feel that sense of desperation for the lostness of other people is we've got to go out to where they are and, and invite them into our homes and go into their homes, get to know them and hear their stories. And so Paul's motivation in all of this was love. Um, and he was willing to sacrifice his preferences, uh, his comfort. He was even willing to put his uh, life at risk in order to
to reach them. And I know many of you do this. I know you do. But we need to do it as an entire church. So what's at stake here is the souls of people. But there's another thing at stake here, and that is the survival of the local church. Um, This is really about saving the church from extinction. We have closed down many Nazarene churches on our Canada West District, which is Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba over uh, the last few decades. Um, Churches die, and they go extinct if they don't learn to adapt and speak the language of the people that we're trying to reach. And we don't have to be a victim to that. And so there's two ways that I think First Church needs to change and adapt. And I want to talk about this briefly. One is that we need to be both incarnational and attractional. And this is something that I see um, us doing in the next year or two ahead of us is putting more focus on this. To be incarnational, incarnate means to put on flesh. It means to be Jesus in the neighborhoods where we live, work, and play. Um, We need to be Jesus with skin on in our world. Um, And so the question that we asked ourselves at a planning session with our leadership last June the 1st, 2019 was, what do we need to do to increase the size of our harvest? And we were asking that question at that retreat. And one of the things that, that the participants said was this, church begins when we leave the building. Now, I think that's a bit exaggerated. Church also exists when we're gathered here in this place. But church begins to fulfill its mission when we go out the doors. So besides being incarnational and going out into the community, we also need to be attractional. Where some churches get this wrong is they think, well, we just need to go out into the community and, and, and we need to do good work, so we need to feed the poor and, and uh, doing those kind of social things. But we need to do much more than that. We also need to attract them to where we already are. We need to do both. Um, Churches that are making a difference in our world today in a big way in their community are both incarnational and attractional. So that when people come into our gathering, so we have a gathering at 1045 on Sunday mornings. It's our largest gathering of the week. When they come in, they're going to come into not just a social experience, but a transcendent experience. They're going to come into this place and sense the presence of God himself. They're going to say, God is among this people. And this is what churches that grow and are healthy and are reaching their communities are doing. And so that's in keeping with what we read going as far back uh, as the book of Genesis when God said to Abraham that he said, you will be the father of a great nation and you will be a light to the nations. And Jesus said that the church is the light of the world. We're to be a city set on a hill where people will be drawn to our light. And so the the local church to survive needs to let our light shine brightly, to be both incarnational, to be Jesus with skin on in the community, but also to draw people to the light and into this place. Um, And if we don't do that, there's no reason for a local church to survive because we don't exist just for ourselves. The other thing we need to do besides being both incarnational and attractional is we need to do both the small 
and the large with excellence. Discipleship is our mission. The mission of First Church of the Nazarene is making Christ-like disciples with a heart for God and a passion for people. That's the mission of the Church of the Nazarene globally, is making Christ-like disciples. That's who we are. And so one of the ways that we do that is through our life groups, our small groups. Most of those meet in homes. And the life groups are the heartbeat of the church. Uh, love begins at home within God's people. It's a place where you can come and love one another and encourage one another. But we need to also take that out into our world and make sure that our groups are open and porous so that the unbeliever can come in and feel welcome. I want to ask you a question. How many disciples did Jesus have? And you're saying 12, most of you. But he had hundreds of disciples, maybe thousands. He had many followers, but he only had 12 apostles. It tells us in Luke chapter 6 that Jesus prayed all night. He went up on a hill or a mountain, and he had the crowd around him, and he called to himself those whom he wanted. And he designated them as apostles, as those who he would send out into the world. Jesus didn't just have relationship with them, but he had a purpose. And so what he wanted to do was send them out to carry on his mission after he went back to be with the Father in heaven and poured out his Holy Spirit. He was preparing them for a purpose. And that's what we need to be doing in the church in our discipleship, when we do the small things, whether we're meeting in triads with groups of three or in our life groups, it's for the purpose of equipping and training each other to take the gospel to those who do not yet believe. And so that everything that we do in here is to equip us for what we're going to do out there. And so we need both the small and the large. The large events, as I've already mentioned, are attractional. Um, people uh, need to come into our services of worship and feel welcomed, to be able to understand what we're saying and to know that we're not just a, a holy club, but that we're expecting them. And uh, we need to get ready for company. That's what I want us to do. So that when we, after the pandemic, and we can start gathering again, it's going to be open doors to the people of the community. So let's reimagine the church. Think of the future that's possible if we would be willing to adapt and change, to become all things to all people, as the Apostle Paul said, so we could by all means save some. Imagine worship services that make you sit on the edge of your seat, wondering what God's going to do next. Imagine worship services that aren't just okay or good or ordinary, but worship services and gatherings that uh, compel you to want to tell your friends and neighbors about the good things that God is doing here. Imagine worship services where your kids are begging you not to be away or out of town on Sunday because they can hardly wait to come themselves. Worship services where the music that we sing together transports you to a place of transcendence where you can worship God in spirit and in truth. Imagine a faith community that has room for everyone. Children, youth, babies, but everybody who's aged as well. For everyone, there's room for everyone. Where everyone matters. Even those who are not yet part of our community. Imagine a faith community that builds bridges into the lives of unbelieving friends and neighbors. That we do that 
on purpose and we remove unnecessary barriers to welcoming them. Imagine a church that is kind of like a community center where people in the community can feel welcomed. A church that's rooted in the Word, but alive in the Spirit. That people know that the Holy Spirit is alive and active in all of our gatherings, our smallest groups, our worship services, our committee meetings, our board meetings. Imagine a church that equips and trains people for the work that God has called you to do. A church that's most conspicuous attitude and behavior is self-giving love. Imagine a church that prays with desperation for revival because we know that people out there are lost and desperately need the Lord Jesus. Imagine a church that knows what it's fighting for, that we're not fighting for a method, a program, or a strategy, but we're fighting for the message of God's love towards all those who call on the name of the Lord. And so here's the bad news. The church is not going back to what it was before the pandemic, at least not anytime soon. But the good news is that the church is not going to go back to what it was before the pandemic. It's going to be different. And we need to see this as a time of opportunity, as our watershed moment. Somebody once said this, and I'm quoting, when the winds of change blow, some people build walls and others build windmills. Are we going to build walls when the wind of the Spirit blows or will we build windmills? So what does it mean for us to be the church? Why are we here? Will it matter to anyone else besides us if the church ceased to exist, if this church shut down? Who would it matter to most? We need to find out what is essential to our identity and what's peripheral and doesn't matter. We need to adapt or die. Like the mighty oak tree, First Church has existed in this city for 109 years because even in the most difficult of times, the leadership of this church found a way to adapt to changing circumstances. The Church of the Nazarene is growing most rapidly in countries like Pakistan, and they're willing to adapt to the culture of the people that they want to meet. So my dream that I had, I think, was maybe a bit of a warning, but I think it was really about an opportunity if we would just seize upon it. People are drawn to light and life. Let's make room for that. This is our watershed moment. I believe that God has called us for such a time as this. This is what love does. It's what prompted the Apostle Paul to say, I've become a slave to all people. It's not about my freedom, my preferences, my likes, my dislikes. It's about what it takes to win those who are unreached. Will you be an oak tree? How about a whole orchard of oak trees where we will stand, this church will stand, not just for 109 years, 
but for 200 or 300 years. We can do this with God's help. So I want to leave you with a closing challenge. Would you this week go out and find someone that you don't necessarily know that well? Maybe it's someone who's very, very different from you. They're not in your friendship circle, your social circle. And maybe it's someone who makes you a bit uncomfortable. Maybe you don't even like them that much. And would you just cross that social boundary, that friendship boundary, and you take the initiative the way God did with us by sending Jesus? Would you reach out to that person, pray first, and invite that person into your friendship circle? Ask questions. Hear their story. Find out what makes their heart beat faster. And that's where it all begins. It begins with you and me and us. God bless you all.